What do you think when you hear the sound of water? Perhaps you think about standing on the shore of the ocean or swimming on a hot summer's day and sipping some ice cold water to quench your thirst. Perhaps it also brings to mind the challenges facing regions all over the world. From almost reaching day zero in Cape Town during the drought a few years ago, to current water supply issues in Johannesburg and other cities and towns around South Africa. Droughts, floods, and other climate change associated water issues are occurring literally everywhere, it seems. Water is a precious resource, and it's more of a political, social, environmental, and relational issue than we perhaps realize. Water and its abundance or scarcity is all a matter of perspective, access, and lived experience. Something many in Somalia right now know firsthand. But first, the African nation of Somalia has long had a forbidding climate, searing heat and dry desert conditions. Now, relentless droughts have stripped millions of rural herders of their animals, their only real wealth, and driven humans closer to the scarce water supplies. It's a living example of the effects of climate change. Surviving in Somalia's Betwa city has turned into a dire challenge. Hundreds of thousands of people have poured into the city after severe droughts made their remote villages unlivable. UN Children's Agency, UNICEF, says Somalia could suffer rates of infant death unseen for half a century as warnings of a looming famine intensify. The number of people now being affected by the worst drought in 40 years has more than doubled, but less than half the money needed to help them has been raised. Climate change and conflict have contributed to severe food shortages across the Horn of Africa. Welcome. I am Dombini Marengani. In season three of the Just for a Change podcast, I have conversations with changemakers from South Africa and further afield. We hear from innovators, social entrepreneurs, industry leaders, activists, and more about the work they do and what makes them tick. We'll find out how they keep the fire burning when it comes to tackling some of the most, to use the system's change word, wicked problems facing the world today. In addition to the worst drought in almost 40 years and mounting challenges related to climate change, Somalia has been experiencing conflict, activity from terrorist groups, and political instability for over 30 years now. As a result, infrastructure, especially in rural areas, is almost non-existent. Around 60% of the population is nomadic, and with water scarcity, the drought, and now a famine, one can imagine the desperation people feel, and it's easy to see why water and access to water are causing huge conflicts. It's not all doom and gloom, though. There are stories of hope and some incredible work being done by changemakers on the ground. Today, my guest is one such changemaker. Abdikayar Mohammed Hussein is a current Bertha Fellow and has been working with the Somali government as well as local and international organizations for the last 10 years in peace building and humanitarian assistance. Good morning, Abdikayar. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real privilege to share your story with us. Abdikayar, you were born in Somalia and have spent much of your life working towards making it a better place to live. Please tell me a little bit about your early years and what has shaped you. Thank you very much. Uh, this is actually now a great opportunity for me actually to share with you my story. You know, at age of three, when I was very young, you know, Somalia central government collapsed. 
and the country, you know, slipped into a civil war in 1991. Uh, so in that time, I displaced five times. I lost family and friends in that civil war. I have spent, you know, five years of my life in displacement in a camp. So in earlier days of my childhood, I used to, I mean, to work with and assist my grandfather, who was actually you know, a traditional elder and peace activist that lost his life in peace building efforts, you know, later on. So I was admired by his bravery, so and his actually heroism. So that was when I decided, you know, to continue the legacy of my grandfather. When I grew up, that was the time I have decided, you know, to continue the legacy of my grandfather and to flow after him. So this is how I started actually to be a social rights activist and a peace activist, you know, and work in peace building in Somalia. Thank you. And you, and you mentioned just before we started recording that peace building is still a very much um, in demand now because you experience regular violence in Mogadishu, the capital city, um, with explosions and bombs. Yeah, so that, that's true. Uh, because of, you know, Somalia has been a, in a conflict, in a violence for the last 30 years. So there is still a need of peace building. There is still a need of reconciliation and to bring together, you know, the warring factions because of there are different political groups fighting each other uh, over the control, over, over the management, or, or maybe just, you know, over the governance of Somalia. As we heard earlier in this episode, Somalia is also experiencing a drought, the worst drought it's had in 40 years. What are some of the issues facing the people of Somalia as a result of this drought? There has been a drought for the last four years. That drought has caused large-scale crop failure and livestock death. As you know, Somali people, 60% of Somali people are rural people who demand on a livestock or keeping camel, goat, these animals, you know. So as a result of the drought, you know, uh, all of these animals, you know, have to die in starvation. And this has impacted, you know, livelihoods and the food supply, which has already resulted, you know, starvation where 70% of rural families do not have any food to eat. And that are around 5 million uh, rural population or 5 million Somali population are in hunger or maybe in food, food insecure. There's actually you know, a projection of a famine uh, in the coming months. If it is not actually, you know, uh, there's a rain. They, now we are in the rainy season. So if this rainy season fails to, then there will be a famine. Then there will be a humid, a great, great, a big humanitarian, you know, crisis in Somalia. There seems to be a lot of elements to the water crisis and and the worsening drought. Um, you've mentioned already that most people live a rural lifestyle where they depend upon livestock, which are not being they're not able to look after in the absence of water and food insecurity. Um, and in this environment, the water crisis has led to conflict in the region. Can you share something about that with us? You know, Somalia is a water-scarce country. 
you know, and there has been continuous decline of fresh water availability, and there has been repeated droughts as a result of the climate change. All of these has resulted in fierce competition of water resources. And this is what actually, you know, causes, you know, conflict of a water resource and also unfair access of water resources. Uh, you know, 70% of the rural population have limited access of safe drinking water, although Somalia is the, uh, you know, a water scarce country. Uh, so water-related conflicts reminded, you know, widespread as a result of the looming climate crisis and lack of water management structures, you know, in place and in the rural areas in Somalia. Because of, there is no government and there is no just, I mean, law enforcement institutions and there is no, you know, dedicated institutions that can manage, you know, water resources among the people. So this is how the conflict, you know, comes actually you now all the ways. If we reflect on uh, the 2010 declaration by the United Nations that access to water and sanitation is a hu basic human right, and yet so many people um, in the conditions you described are not able to enjoy this human right. Can you please talk to me a bit about water justice and why you think it's a key part of peace building in Somalia? In 2021 alone, water-related conflicts left death of around 300 persons and displacement of 160,000 persons, mostly women and children, which are taking place in Somalia. So water conflict is, a, is actually one of major causes or major you know, contributing factors to the insecurity and conflict in Somalia. Therefore, how fair access to the water and also transparency and fairness in management in accessibility and affordability of water resources is vital and important for addressing climate threats and also to the peace building efforts in Somalia. In, in the conversation before this recording with our production team, you mentioned that some of the justice issues arising have got to do with powerful or bigger clans having more or better access to water than minority clans. Can you tell us a bit more about this and what it means practically? You know, those who are fighting over the water resources are powerful, you know, rural clans. And within these clans, there are minority groups who are the most affected in water-related conflicts. And they have to suffer in the hands of a bigger or superior clan, clans who are fighting over the management of water resources. So in such times when there's a conflict, when, you know, powerful clans are fighting each other, you know, minorities, they find difficult in access to the water source. Or they have to opt to far away water sources, or they have to pay water for higher prices, you know. So they are the most affected, uh, you know, when it comes for water conflicts. Yeah. So can you maybe, Abdukaya, can you, ex you, you explain that in 1990 um, the government collapsed, right? So that's like your formal public administrative government. But you still have a very um, extensive system of clans 
which actually controls people's access to resources. Is that right? Yeah, of course. You know, 60% of Somali population are rural people. So we have, you know, a very weak, you know, authorities that are concentrated on, you know, urban areas. But the rural areas are, are just, you know, are controlled by these clans, you know. And each clan has an elder. So these are the elders. These are the, actually, you know, the guys or maybe actually, you know, the people who are actually, you know, uh, responsible governance or management of the, of the water sources in the rural areas, you know. And can you please maybe explain how do these elders get into their positions of authority? This is, this is actually the you know, same as a kingdom or maybe kings. So this is, a, you know, they inherit from their fathers or grand grandfathers actually you now. So this inheritance, you know, uh, positions. And uh, they are not elected. So this is actually quite remarkable. You're explaining that the majority of the population actually lives outside of accountable and transparent public administration. Um, that's only something that you find predominantly in the urban areas where a minority of the population lives. And the majority is instead ruled under these hereditary um, systems, which I'm wondering, how does that um, influence who gets to have water, right? Because if I'm from a particular clan, I'm going to prioritize people who share my identity over others. Is that something that you see often? Yeah, of course. That's what makes, you know, the conflict. Mm. When there's no, you know, a system, when there's no, actually, you know, a structure between these powerful clans, when there is no agreement of how they actually share the water sources. The water sources that I'm talking about are actually, you know, the streams, a river, a valleys, the water source, open water sources, uh, which are not actually you now private, but actually you know, public water sources or share water sources. So these powerful clans do not have, uh, you know, agreements or somehow actually, you know, formalities. Uh, to share the water, you know. So this is a way how they actually, you know, come into a conflict, you know. When you say conflict, what, what does conflict look like? Does that mean that there are people who restrict, like physically restrict access to a particular water source? Or um, does it involve uh, capturing particular parts of, of, of a a ge specific geographic area that has access to water. Could you maybe explain that a bit more? So it's all about management. It's all about, you know, controlling the water source and accessing it first, you know. So that's all about it. It's not about actually, you know, uh, going to that area and capturing it. But it's all about actually, you know, uh, who's, going to be, who's going to actually to control it, who's going to actually to be uh, the first to access it. So this is the way, because of there's a water scarcity sometimes. This water source can dry up. Uh, when there's a drought, this water source, you know, dry up and water, you know, level decreases. So this is what makes actually you no know, conflict, you know. So they want actually to be the first group who actually access the water so water before it decreases or before it dries up. That's incredible. So if 
the water supply dries up before smaller groups can access it, then there's no plan for them. Of course. So when that clan, you know, and uh, it takes, you know, uh, drinks all the water and the water, you know, gone or maybe actually dries up, then others, they have no option, but they have to actually go to far away water source else. Another water source, which is far away from them, will, will, which actually will cost them a lot. And with the kind of unpredictability that you've already mentioned about having four, um, four years of drought um, in the immediate past, makes it quite difficult to, to plan where to get water from. 50 years ago, it was actually 10 years, one is in 10 years, but now it's actually, you know, it's it, it become continuous. So this is what, this is actually you know, a factor that, you know, contributing, you know, an increase of the conflict over the, over the water, you know. Do, do women in particular play a particular role in this water conflict? You know, I was going to actually share with you that issue when I was actually talking about the minorities because of those who suffer, those who actually are most affected in, you know, these conflicts are minority uh, groups and the women and children. Because of, you know, uh, uh, traditionally, women, they are responsible to fetch water from the water source. When the water source is actually near to the, you know, maybe actually the settlement. So, so you know, uh, there are actually cases of actually, you know, gender violence, there are cases of rape. There are cases of actually, you know, um, uh, violence against the women where they have to, when there is a conflict. Because of uh, it, hap- what happens is that when uh, there's a, a fighting between two clans, maybe this clan can use actually, you know, uh, to actually, you know, use a rape or maybe actually you know, violence against the women as a revenge. Something that has become clear to me in hearing about the work that you're doing is that the conflict over water and access to water is a serious issue. And it's a source of trauma and actually has cost a number of people their lives. Tell me about the work you've undertaken this year in getting together various warring clans to sit at the same table and find mutually beneficial solutions to this crisis. You know, I have been working with the rural communities, uh, particularly the clan elders. Who are actually now who actually are, are the leaders of these powerful clans? So I have been working with them to mediate their water conflicts and also find a permanent solution for water sharing. So with this process and with the inputs of the elders, I have developed a guidance book for fair and sustainable management of shared water source. I had a meeting with elders powerful of, of, of these, you know, fighting clans. Then I succeeded actually, you know, to bring them together and then mediate, you know, their conflicts and disputes and then come up a solution. And with that solution, I have to actually, you know, convert into a book that will help other clans and will help other, you know, people, rural people who actually maybe actually, you know, have a fighting, same, same conflict in the future, you know. So I came up with that actually you know, guidance book, uh, which will help them actually you know, to uh, share the water equally and fairly, you know, without conflict. Can you give me some more information about the work that you've undertaken to get these varying clans around the same table? 
the rural people, they live in the rural areas and the elders, they are living in the rural areas. So I have to travel to the rural areas. Then I have to start the process with a constant building. Uh, I have to actually meet the clan elders individually, you know, separately, each of them, each, you know, maybe there are two clans fighting each other. So I have to, you know, start the process to meet uh, the elder of this clan and then confess uh, him uh, that they actually to resolve their conflict through a dialogue. And then when he accepts, you know, that uh, maybe actually offer, I have to go to the other clan and meet, you know, the elder of that clan and do same. When they accept both groups, when they accept, you know, to meet and resolve their actually, you know, conflict through a dialogue, then I have to organize a big mediation meeting where actually they came together in a cycle and usually I have to actually you know uh, hold this actually you know uh, mediation under a tree, not under a house. We don't have that actually you know in the rural areas. So the video that I have been using you know in the rural areas was under a tree to bring them under that tree, and then they actually sit in a cycle, and then they actually discuss. They actually discuss their actual dispute and their conflict, and I mediate. I take the role to mediate. Uh, actually, you know, their conflict, then I have to mediate, I have to give them, you know, alternatives. I have to actually, you know, give them, you know, uh, maybe guidance, uh, you know, that relates to their conflict and dispute. And finally, they come up a solution. They come up actually, you know, something and or some maybe arrangement uh, that will lead to that both clans share the water equally. One good thing that came out from this mediation meeting was that uh, they actually you know, form a, a committee, a water management committee, where the members came from these you know, fighting clans. So that means there's a, there's a, a structure representing you know, both clans that will manage you know, water resources for them you know, uh, equally and fairly. So this was actually you know, a good thing that came out from the mediation meeting and that actually you know, has helped me a lot from my understanding, this way of dealing with problems is not new. In generations past, clan elders would mediate and negotiate with each other when issues arose. Can you discuss a little bit how that's changed in recent times? That's true. You know, there has been, uh, a, there has been actually, you know, always there has been a system uh, and there was a tradition where when there's a conflict, you know, the elders of both clans to keep that they came together and then there's solve the problem, you know, uh, mutually. That has, that used, we used to have that. And we actually, we actually be, we have been proud of that actual culture, which has been, you know, uh, existence in Somalia for actually, you know, uh, from generation to generation. But what has been changed, uh, you know, this good tradition or actually good culture is actually, you know, the climate change, the looming climate change. Uh, you know, the, the decreasing water sources and, you know, the country's political crisis. Because, of, for example, uh, some water conflicts uh, between the, you know, between, you know, rural people are activated by actually third parties, which are not these clans who are fighting. It has been activated by other, you know, third party who is in the uh, urban areas maybe, uh, you know, a, a, a powerful 
a group, political group, or maybe actually you now a powerful actually you now politicians who have interest, you know, in the in the fight of these two clans. So you know, this is something that came out now and that not existed, you know, before or centuries ago, or maybe actually you now uh, when, when there was actually you now a good culture where people they come together and solve their problem. So can you tell me a little bit more about these politicians who are actually based in urban areas? What are they trying to achieve by interfering with the consensus building in rural areas around water conflict? For example, Al-Shabaab, which is a, a terrorist organization, they use actually you know, a water conflict between clan groups as actually you know, as a, as a, as a mechanism to fight and rule these clans. For example, if these clans are in agreement or maybe in a peace, they can join together and they can come against, you know, a shabab. They can fight and then they can join their force actually to uh, root out, you know, a shabab. So a shabab, they have to use a water conflict or this conflict actually you know, to manage and to divide and to actually, you know, uh, these clans. Wow. Um. Obviously, part of working with clan elders um, requires building trust. So can you share with us how you were able to gain the respect and trust of various clan elders that you've been engaging with? You know, that's true because of when you are not actually an elder or maybe actually maybe actually not some, someone who's actually not a popular figure, uh, you know, you could have that problem. But the thing that has helped me was actually you know, my grandfather was actually uh, was actually popular in peace building efforts in Somalia. He was a uh, popular. So most of the clan elders know him, know his name. So I have his name. So whenever I tell them my name and I tell them that I actually you know came from that uh, you know that actually you know uh, uh, elder and have that name, they give me a respect. They give me a chance that I can talk to them, that they can, I actually you know, mediate. Okay, I was going to say, obviously you are, you are, you're able to refer to the legacy of your grandfather, but your own work speaks to um, the importance that you place on peace and conflict resolution and enables them to trust you um, and to engage in a, in, a, in a dialogue with you. You work with an organization called Barido, which is a youth-led organization that promotes democratic values. Can you tell me about the work that Barido does and perhaps comment on how you see young people leading the change in Somalia? Brera Platform is a non-governmental, non-profit, youth-led organization. They work in a promotion of democratic values and institutions, participatory and inclusive society in Somalia. You know, 70% of Somali population are you know, youth, and under 35 years age. And they are not engaged in decision-making. They are not included in decision-making, and they have no role uh, in actually, you know, in decision-making or maybe actually public, you know, uh, uh, public issues. They are excluded. So, you know, uh, in respect of this, as a result of this, we have to actually, you know, this is how PRED came out to actually, you know, promote participatory and inclusive society where all people are included, where all people are engaged, 
where no one is left time. Because of what we have in Somalia is that, you know, women and youth are excluded. It's only actually now the older people, it's only clan, you know, based system that works in Somalia. We don't have actually democracy. We don't have, we don't have where people, you know, vote uh, to actually, they want actually to uh, represent them. We still have a where uh, the representatives, political representatives are elected by the clan elders. The people that I was talking about, uh, that I was telling you, you know, the representatives, the government representatives are elected by a clan elders. So the clan elders, they prefer all the people, they prefer all the actual politicians over the women, over the youth. So youth and women have no role, they're excluded. So this is how Prada came out to actually promote that issue. And what they did was actually you know, uh, they delivered, you know, a leadership skills uh, like conflict prevention, conflict escalation, and resolution, you know, trainings that targeted or featured to 300 youth members who are women and men, you know, young men and young women, uh, to strengthen, you know, participation and influence and representation of young people in decision making in order to exercise their role as a responsible citizens in Somalia. I think you've touched on a really, really important issue. Um, the African continent is overwhelmingly populated by young people, and yet we fail to see them in decision-making roles. We fail to see them engaging at the policy table, and we fail to hear their concerns and their voices and their um, hopes for the future incorporated in in planning at a policy level um, in many governments, not just Somalia. Um, and this deliberate exclusion is going to have consequences. You've shared with us some of the very dire consequences um, that have, have shown themselves in Somalia with young people engaging in conflict um, through terrorist groups to have their voices heard or possibly taking the long and potentially deadly um, trek to Europe. In, to try and migrate and find other opportunities. And I think what you've explained to us is such a missed opportunity, not only in Somalia, but um, all over the continent. Um, and I think the leadership of your organization really speaks to your values. We did get a chance to visit Barido's website and we're very impressed to see so many young people taking on quite weighty and important uh, roles and responsibilities. Um, and I hope that can be a lesson for other youth around the continent. Many people would feel overwhelmed by all the issues facing Somalia, including the examples that you just shared with us of um, violence against innocent people while they're simply trying to improve their access to resources um, for themselves and their communities. Um, it's very traumatic. What helps you to stay engaged and hopeful? And what is your vision for Somalia? You know, what makes me just, I mean, to stay uh, resilient is the one I see, actually, you know, I see resilience of the Somali people who have been in a conflict for almost 30 years and is still hopeful, actually, you know, to get a peace. It's still hopeful, actually, you know, to, recon to reconstruct, uh, you know, their country. Whenever I see these people, whenever I actually remember how actually, you know, hopeful, how actually, you know, uh, brave was my grandfather, actually, you know, how he was actually, you know, not sleep in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a time or maybe in an hour 
and he was actually engaged. He was actually, you know, uh, a peace for actually, you know, a peace building all the time uh, in a hope of actually you know, achieving a peace. And what I hope from Somalia is that finding a solution uh, to the, you know, to long-lasting, you know, conflicts in Somalia uh, and achieving a more peaceful and prosperous, uh, you know, country or society in Somalia. Thank you, Abdi Kayar, for sharing your story with us. I've been so inspired to hear about your work and the power of mediation and peace building in conflict resolution, particularly in your work in creating equitable access to water. And I can say that um, the continent, not only Somalia, but the continent is also a better place for having people like you who are committed to its future, um, to its peace and to its sustainability. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Perhaps fighting for water feels a little foreign to you right now, but according to the World Wildlife Fund, two-thirds of the world's population will be facing water shortages in the next few years. It's possible that in our lifetimes, we will experience conflict over water access. I'm so encouraged by the work done by Abdi Kaya and people like him. It keeps me hopeful that even if this were to be the case, then we have proven ways of working collaboratively for the greater good of everyone rather than stockpiling enough for just ourselves. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for tuning in to season three of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you are interested in hearing more conversations with changemakers, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts and feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.